Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. On September 7th, 1996, in only a minute and 49 seconds, Mike Tyson knocked out the WBA heavyweight champion to reclaim the title in one of the shortest heavyweight championship fights in boxing history. Yet this wouldn't be the biggest story of the night. That would be reserved for an incident that happened even quicker in a mere matter of moments as gunshots rang out a block from the strip. One of the most influential rappers of all time would begin a losing battle with death. You ever hear of Lesane Parish Crooks? No, sir. That was what was on Tupac's birth certificate. He was born on June 16, 1971 in Brooklyn. His mother, Afeni Shakur, was a political activist and a member of the Black Panther Party. Now, you remember what you said about J. Edgar Hoover in a prior episode? Yeah, he's a bag of shit. Right, so he's back. We get to talk about him again. He was a racist, weirdo, evil bag of shit. Yeah, and uh, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? So back in the time frame that we're in, he declares the Black Panther Party to be this horrible terrorist organization and goes after them in J. Edgar Hoover fashion. So from what I've read, Tupac's mom put this crazy name nobody's ever heard of on his birth certificate in an attempt to provide him some cover from his infamous, kind of in air quotes there, family ties. Afeni and her boyfriend at the time were both subjects of Hoover's COINTELPRO. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's basically what you just said. Pretty awful and falls in line with all that. Yeah, it was part of Hoover's campaign leading the FBI that he had done for years and continued to do ridiculously, which was basically anything black people were involved in was a threat to the country in his mind. That's fair. And so in April of 1969... The NYPD arrested Afeni, and she was charged with a group of 21 other Panthers for conspiring to kill police officers and bomb police stations. So these charges were no joke. She was looking at up to 350 years in prison if she was convicted. And you might be wondering, okay, why are you talking about Afeni and the Black Panthers and Jagger Hoover when this is supposed to be an episode about Tupac? But I think this is relevant to understand him, who he was and what motivated him and to really understand his life story. These stories about his mom and what she went through, I just think it's really helpful also to understand the influence that it had on his music and ultimately his life. I agree wholeheartedly because I kind of get frustrated with people who say they don't like Tupac or oh, that stupid gangster rap or whatever, because this is a very deep guy and I consider him more of a philosopher. Gangster rap might have been his medium, but he had a lot to say and was very thoughtful, very intelligent, and just a very different person than what was portrayed in the music videos or in the news. If you just go back and listen to it, when he was 17 years old, he did an interview for a performing arts school in California. And uh, go back and listen to the kid in that interview, and you can tell the depth of his person and character. Yeah, in a lot of his early interviews, that stuff really comes across. You could just tell he had a jubilant personality. People who knew him when he was a teenager or even a young man would often comment on how his smile lit up a room, how his disposition was contagious, and, and his personality. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. So, back to Afeni. She's pregnant with Tupac while she's fighting this court case that I mentioned where she's facing up to 350 years. In an interview, Pac said that when the police raided her place and they put a shotgun to her belly, she was pregnant. She had hooked up with a guy named Billy Garland, who is Tupac's biological father. So she's pregnant. She's facing these really serious, frankly, scary prison sentence 
charges. But she wasn't shaken. If anything, it seems that this, the weight and the gravity of the situation actually made her more resolved. And she goes to trial on the charges. She doesn't take a plea. She doesn't cop to anything. She doesn't look for a way out. She just faces it head on. And according to some accounts that I've read, when undercover officers who were testifying at her trial were cross-examined about Afini, they basically only had good things to say about her. They were left to describe the work that she did as a teacher during the day and then her volunteering efforts throughout the community in the evenings and on the weekends. They couldn't point to a single violent criminal act that she'd committed or been a part of. Now, what's even better is that Afini actually represented herself. Wow. So she personally cross-examined these cops and all the witnesses. She stood before the jury and made her case, encouraging them to end this nightmare that she was living in. And those are the words she used. Reflecting on her closing argument and the overall oral advocacy in court, she's said, looking back, that she was brilliant, but that she wouldn't have been able to be brilliant if she thought for a second that she was going to get out of jail. It was only because she thought that this would be the last time she would be able to speak before they locked her up forever that she was able to be so resolved. Wow. So she figured she has nothing to lose here. Yeah. Yeah, There was no risk. She just wanted to get her side of the story out, but she didn't think it was going to do any good. To kind of use a Vegas analogy, right? She she saw it like she was playing with house money. So what did she have to lose? So the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict on all 156 charges. Damn. If that isn't wild enough, she gives birth to Tupac a month after being acquitted. So just she represents herself. She wins this case. It's talked about how well she did. She wasn't an attorney. She was a teacher. And not that you have to be somebody special to be an attorney, but that's intimidating, right? To go into a courtroom and to know that you have that much on the line and to represent yourself and and then to win and then to give birth. I've never done that, but it looks really hard and I don't want to. Props to her, man. What a... Yeah. And she was relatively young at this point. Yeah. And so uh, about a year or so after Lassane is born, Afini changes his name to Tupac Amaru Shakur. She named him after a Peruvian revolutionary, Tupac Amaru II. After spending most of his childhood moving around, the family actually settles in a place that's fond and close to your heart, Baltimore, Maryland, for a bit in the mid-80s. There's a chance you guys could have been friends. Yeah, who knows? We might have crossed paths, but I'm familiar with where he lived and the the house, which is divided up into two apartments there, it was for sale recently. So why didn't you buy it? My wife didn't think it was a good idea. It's always the wise, and they're probably right. But anyway, so he ends up, Tupac ends up in this elite Baltimore School for the Arts. And here he really distinguishes himself. He's not just a student. This guy, he this is where his star really starts to shine. And he could do it all, dancing, poetry, acting. He performed in several of Shakespeare's plays and even performed as the Mouse King in the Nutcracker Ballet. The guy was just, he was a theater kid and a really good one. Unfortunately, his family would move again before he could graduate. And Baltimore in the mid late 80s was the crack capital. Yeah, things weren't great. And so you can understand what prompted them to move. They were, after all, trying to just get somewhere better. And so they move across the country, actually, to Marin City, California, which is just north of San Francisco on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. But unfortunately, this is where Pac would find himself spending time in the streets, selling drugs and becoming more involved in gang culture. And unfortunately, Afini would apparently find herself struggling even more with a crack addiction. Like, moved, trying to find somewhere better. It didn't work out that way. That crack was wiping people out Yeah, in the 80s. That was bad. Yeah, and some sources say that Pac was even selling crack on the same streets that Afini was buying hers. So this is just a sad, 
situation. And if you know the song, Dear Mama, which I'm sure you do, I don't know if the people listening do. Oh, it's playing in my head right now. When you're talking about that, I'm thinking, even though I sell rocks, it felt good putting money in your mailbox. And Mama, even as a crack fiend, you always was a black queen. Like the song is just playing through his life story. All right. I got to say, this is literally the next thing in my notes. And you had no idea because you didn't read them. So uh, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So I was actually going to say those lyrics, those two lyrics I was going to pull out because that's exactly what that reminded me of, too. But during this time, Tupac's also busy writing poetry. Like you said, he is uh, he's more of this philosopher genuinely an artist kind of guy. And so he meets a woman named Layla Steinberg, who'd been hosting poetry lessons in Oakland Park. And he actually works to convince her to become his manager and to help him on his journey to becoming a paid artist. And his plan worked. In 1990, he got a gig as a backup dancer slash roadie slash fill-in MC slash whatever they needed for Digital Underground. And if you don't know, they were a hip-hop group well-known for the Humpty Dance. Obviously, they put out some other music, but I think most people have probably at least heard of that song if they haven't heard it. Now, this gig is what really gets things going, and the rest is history. The next year, Tupac releases his first album, Tupacalypse, through Interscope Records. The album would peak at 64th on the Billboard 200 and is certified gold, selling just about 75,000 copies short of a million. And this album was not a gangster rap album. It was an album that featured songs about what was going on, what he saw and what was happening around him and what people were living through. Specifically, he was rapping about racism, police brutality, poverty, black on black crime and teenage pregnancy. This is the album that had Brenda's Got a Baby and If My Homie Calls. Did you want to rap any of that? No, no, it's playing in my head, but, but I'm good. And yeah, the whole for people that aren't into rap or gangster rap that was the whole genesis of the genre was that it was about young kids mostly black in the city speaking on rapping on poetry set to music on the bad stuff that they were seeing in their neighborhoods out their front doors with their family with their friends it got a bad rap pardon the pun as being promoting violence and whatnot but really they were just journaling their life experience through music and that connected with a lot of people who were living the same thing yeah yeah that's a really good point now as you alluded to some people didn't see it that way and so Pac's first album wasn't without public controversy like the vice president of the united states kind of controversy so dan quayle came out and said that it shouldn't have been published do you, you remember this at all i do and i remember dan quayle he's a <laughs> moron well all right all right let pause there let me let me set it up and then you can knock it down so the backstory to this, in case you don't know, is that it was a 19-year-old stopped in Texas by a Texas trooper for a broken headlight. The teenager shot the trooper in the neck, killing him. And he was tried and convicted and later executed by lethal injection for this. But during his trial, part of his defense, he claimed that he was influenced by Pac's album, which was playing in his car at the time of the shooting. So Dan Quayle, vice president at the time, comes out. And he's all, you know, the music is causing teenagers to murder cops. And this stuff has no place in our society. It shouldn't be published. It's the devil, etc. Dan Quayle's a f***ing moron. He's proof that there are no qualifications to be vice president. He was the laughing stock at the time. I mean, I think it's not a hot take to just say that there probably is nobody really running around going, 
man, Dan Quayle. Wow, that guy. He was the best. Or that he is the somehow moral or observational compass that we should follow. To me, the well, I, I listened to Tupac and that's what made me do this horrible thing and shoot this cop. That's the about as dumb as the Twinkie defense. It's crazy because it comes up a lot. We saw it with Marilyn Manson's music made me do it and Eminem's music made me do it and playing Grand Theft Auto made me do it. And the reality is we're in control. Unless somebody's got a gun to your head, you're making your decisions. I think what kind of music you listen to or whatever, maybe that has some influence on you. But at the end of the day, like you're responsible for your actions and music doesn't make you go shoot somebody no more than eating a box of Twinkies after you've been on a diet does. Yeah. If we're going to follow the logic of that defense, then we should have an unprecedented population boom following Cardi B's disgusting music. Oh, that's a a good segue to the next part. All right. So let's circle back to Afini for a minute. She ends up moving back to New York in 1991 and she got clean. So, God bless her. I'm glad that happened. She beat her addiction. She and Pac ultimately would reconcile, and they would remain close for the rest of his life. So, I'm glad that in this story, she was able to overcome that, and that they were able to salvage their relationship, because it really was on the rocks there for a while, while he was in the streets, and she was struggling with her crack addiction while they were in California. Now... I was really tempted to do a deep dive and detail the rest of Pac's albums, but this is a true crime podcast, not a music or hip-hop history pod, so I will refrain, but just know that was difficult for me because it really is such a rich and interesting thing to talk about. But I do think it's worth noting that Pac only released four albums during his lifetime. 21 total albums have been released to his credit, but only four were released while he was alive. Nonetheless, the Recording Industry Association of America, RIAA, who does all of the record keeping and certifying and that sort of thing, says that Tupac is the 45th top-selling artist of all time by album sales and streaming figures. He's sold more than 75 million records to date, according to Forbes. So regardless of how you feel about his music or what you think about him, it's undeniable that he's a big deal in the music industry. Now, we know Tupac's music career was starting to take off. He's releasing albums and things are looking up, but things weren't all gold chains, unicorns, and rainbows. In August of 92, some jealous teens tried to jump Pac. He drew a gun, but he dropped it in the scuffle. Somebody else picked it up. The gun ultimately went off, and a nearby child, a six-year-old, was inadvertently shot and killed. Tupac was never charged in the child's death, but some around Pac said that he was really torn up over what happened. It bothered him. He was inconsolable. The child's family filed a civil suit against him, which he settled out of court for several hundred thousand dollars, which some say was supposedly paid by an unnamed record company. Some people believe to be death row, but that's not verifiable, or at least I couldn't find anything to verify that. The next fall, Tupac shot and wounded two off-duty police officers in Atlanta during an altercation. Now, he gets charged in that case, but they're ultimately those charges are dropped after it surfaces that the officers had been drinking, initiated the incident, even threatened Pac with a gun that was apparently stolen or lifted from some other crime. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then in 94, Tupac spent 15 days in jail for assaulting director Alan Hughes, who fired him from the set of Menace to Society for being disruptive. Now, in late 94, Pac faced the most serious charges he would ever face, stemming from an incident in 1993. A young woman alleged that she was forced to perform oral sex on Tupac and three other men in his hotel room. Pac was charged with three counts of sodomy, some gun charges, and two counts of sexual abuse. 
He had previously had a consensual sexual encounter with this woman and strongly denied the allegations. Later, he would say that he believed that this was a setup. Now, we're going to pause that story for a second because on November 30th of 1994, while the jury was deliberating, Tupac was invited to Co-op Recording Studios in Manhattan to throw down a verse. When he got there, he was attacked by three armed men in the lobby of the studio. They beat him and, by many accounts, shot him five times. Some sources say he was only shot once and that it was actually him who shot himself when he pulled the gun and it was inadvertent during the melee or whatever. But what's undeniable is that he gets jumped and he's beaten. He's got wounds from being beaten. He ends up going to the hospital and he was essentially brutally attacked, shot at least once and robbed. Coming back to the trial then for this sexual related stuff, Pac would end up being wheeled into court in a wheelchair the next morning after this happens. He ends up getting acquitted of all the charges except for the two counts of sexual abuse, which specifically was for, quote, forcibly touching the woman's buttocks, end quote, in his hotel room. After acquitting him of the other charges, the jury noted there was just a lack of evidence for any of the other things he had been charged with. Nonetheless, in 1995, Pac received a sentence of between one and a half to four and a half years of incarceration in prison. He and that was on the charges of touching her butt? Yes. Now, Tupac sought to appeal his conviction, but the judge set his bail, even for challenging the conviction in an appeal, at over a million dollars. Shoo! So he was just on the scene. He didn't have anywhere near that kind of cash, and he started serving his sentence at Rikers in February 95, and he would end up in Dannemora before it was all said and done. Wait, so this happened in New York? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're in New York. Everything's in New York. While he's incarcerated, he's reading major philosophy works and exchanging letters with celebrities like Jim Carrey and Tony Danza. But ultimately, this was a very difficult time for Tupac. Some people have rumored that part of the reason why he struggled so much was because he was either sexually assaulted or possibly something else had happened in prison. And What's undeniable is that prison is an awful place to be. He was in a prison that was particularly awful in Danamora. And uh, so regardless of whether he was assaulted, abused or whatever, I'm sure it would be difficult for anybody to be there. It was hell hugging on his mama from a jail cell. That's exactly right. Now imagine for a moment that you're Tupac back in 95. Your star's on the rise. Things are looking up. You catch this charge, which up until the end, Tupac denied that he did anything other than what he was convicted of. He seemed to acquiesce that he did touch her butt and he believed that the allegations were part of a setup. Now, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just giving you sort of his take on things. I think what he said about it is it's a lot of real G's doing time because the groupie bent the truth and told a lie. I didn't ask you to do this, but I'm really (laughs) glad you are. Uh, It's also worth noting that one of the other guys who was accused of the same sodomy sexual assault stuff pled to a misdemeanor after Pac's trial and never received a single day of jail time. Well, that is just fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, he goes from his stars on the rise. He's putting out a record and things are looking up and he's reconciled with his mom. She's beat her addiction. His life is really seeming to turn a corner to now he's incarcerated. And from things I've read and watched, like I said, it's just not pretty. So then comes along a guy who would offer to fix things, but it would come at a price. That man was Marion Hugh Knight, better known as Suge Knight, which was a modified version of his childhood nickname, Sugar Bear. So he went from Sugar Bear to Suge, which, I mean, if you don't know who Suge Knight is, Google a picture of him. This dude could have walked on and played defensive lineman for any NFL team. My understanding is he actually played, I think, in high school and I want to say maybe in like community college or... No, he got in the NFL. Oh, 
Really? Yeah. Okay, so I didn't deep dive his background. I knew that he was like a legit football player. Yeah, he was briefly in the NFL. Wow. So there you have it. The dude is huge. He's terrifying. I look at pictures and I get scared. So there you have it. So Suge is looking to build his death row records empire. He's the guy in charge, but he needs to sign new good talent. And he sees Tupac as a potential cash cow. He recognizes that Tupac is the real deal and he's got what it takes. He's got the talent and rightly so. I mean, Suge was spot on on this. And Suge was known then and even later as the kind of guy who got stuff done one way or another. It was just understood in the industry. If you needed somebody who would make something happen, he was the kind of guy that could do it. So he goes to visit Pac and Lockup, and he offers to post bail for Pac to get out. Now, remember, we're talking almost like $1.5 million. It's 95. That's a ton of money now. That's even more money back then. This isn't just a couple hundred bucks. Of course, it comes with a price. He'll post bail if Tupac will agree to make at least three records with Death Row. Now, remember, Tupac's in this place where he just wants to get out. I don't know that he would have done anything, but it seemed like he was at a place where... Mama, I ain't happy here. Right. So he he can't refuse. So he ends up signing a what looks like a handwritten napkin-style contract that Death Row's attorney had written up. He signs it, and he agrees that he's going to make three records with Death Row. Now, some people in various documentaries have likened this to Tupac selling his soul to the devil. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but... Between the red suits and how things turned out, I can at least understand the comparison. This signing is not long after the quad incident, right? So he has this beatdown shooting in New York in the studio. We need to go back to that for a minute. That incident and aligning with Suge would be like baking soda and vinegar. Those two together would propel this infamous West Coast-East Coast rivalry that was already bubbling over. Tupac believed that Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Sean Puffy Combs, Diddy, or whatever he's going by this decade, and Biggie were in on the attack, or at least aware that it was going to take place. Because remember, we're in New York, so we're on their turf. So they should know what's going on, or at least that's what Tupac thought. And it didn't help that Puffy and Biggie were actually in the building when all this went down. They adamantly deny any involvement or knowledge about the attack. But at the end of the day, perception is reality sometimes. This thing happens in New York. It's on Bad Boy's home turf. That's the record label that Puffy runs that Biggie raps to. So Puff and Big, they're in the building. It almost seems too perfect to to think that they didn't have at least an idea that this could happen or was going to happen. That's how Tupac feels. And what a lot of people might not realize is that Tupac and Biggie were actually friends before this. Biggie was coming onto the rap scene a little bit after Tupac. And he really looked up to him. And they admired one another as artists and human beings. They really had this mutual kind of friendship, brotherhood. They were in a really good space before things turned sour, particularly this quad incident. The quad shooting was in November of 94. In February of 95, Biggie releases the song, Who Shot Ya? So just a few months after Pac is shot, Biggie releases a song with these lyrics. Who shot ya? Separate the weak from the obsolete. Hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's on a word I won't say. F all that bicker and beef. I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek. Your heartbeats sound like Sasquatch feet. And I'm Crooklyn's finest. You rewind this, bad boy's behind this. Now the perception was that bad boy was practically claiming credit for it. Why else would Biggie put out this song, Who Shot Ya, with lyrics? And that's just a sampling. There's a lot in here. The song is literally about shooting somebody. Why else would bad boy or Biggie put out such a record? Because it's going to sell a lot of records. And it's going to create interest and controversy and all that stuff sells. 
That's a great point. But something I didn't know until I researched this case that I think is really helpful to dispel that, but people just didn't care at that time, was that Biggie had actually recorded the song before Pac got shot. They were still just working on it and putting it out. I was going to say that. As long as it takes to get an album out or get a song out, like this could have been recorded a year ago. Especially back then. You know, I think digitally things are a little different now. But back then, it took time to put a record together. And so this song was recorded before Pac gets shot. The other thing is, let's be real for a second. It's not like it's that uncommon for somebody in the streets in these places where these guys are rapping about to be shot. So... It's not like he names Tupac or that there's specific facts about the case that make it, oh, this is clear. It's the Quad Record Studio and Tupac. It's just a generic who shot you about this person being shot. And It's either generic or maybe it's referencing somebody else. But that's not a really good legal defense to say, no, no, no. I wasn't talking about shooting him. I was talking about somebody else we shot. (laughs) You only make comments like that if you have blanket immunity. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We'll get to Keefe D later. But God bless the First Amendment and the ability to put out art that can be controversial. So anyway, in July 95, Bad Boy hires members of the Southside Crips for protection against the Mob Piru Bloods, who've been working for Death Row. These two gangs from Compton have been at war for literally three decades, and they're intertwined in this story in a way that that they have to be brought up. We have to talk about it. And as you can probably guess by the fact that we've got Bad Boy hiring the Crips for protection and Death Row already employing some bloods, things are about to get more serious and more deadly. In August of 95, Suge took the stage at the Source Awards and famously said, you got this one in your pocket? No, I know what you're talking about, but I I don't remember. Yeah, I feel like I was young, and I remember when this happened. Any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star and don't want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all on the record dancing, come to death row. This was a direct shot at Puffy, who was sitting right there in the audience. As far as disses, to this point in history, I feel like this was one of the biggest it basically, he got up on the stage and said, F you, Puffy. And speaking of that, because some people might not know, I took that for granted when I was working out my notes. That reference about being all up in the videos, you want to speak to that real quick? Like how that's a shot at Puffy? Because Puffy had Biggie and he had some other acts too. Junior Mafia and, and Mace, 112, Mace, Mace yeah. some others. But particularly in Biggie's music, Puffy would put in a few words of his own or rap a little bit or appear in the videos. He wasn't staying backstage. He wasn't doing back office stuff. He was putting his own voice and face and whatnot in the videos, which some saw as him trying to steal or share the spotlight with the stars. Yeah, riding their coattails and getting his 15 seconds of fame. Yeah, exactly. All right, so Tupac ends up getting signed the next month. So we got the Source Awards, August 95, And then Suge signs Tupac in September, on September 16th, 1995. Remember how I said that Suge paid Tupac to get out of prison? Well, that's true-ish. Suge was a businessman. The guy, like, money was his thing, right? So the money that was used to post Tupac's bail was just an advance on Tupac's future earnings with Death Row. So really, it was just a loan against Tupac's own money. So it literally was, I'll bail you out, you're going to come make three albums for me. Yeah, And that's that. If your share of what the albums are going to produce is more than the bail money, I'll give you a small cut. But until I'm paid back, you get nothing. 
yeah, I think it might have been worked out. He might have got a little like a, what I would call a pittance. But generally speaking, yeah, he had to work that off. This is not all that different from some sort of weird indentured servitude type agreement. Obviously, though, Tupac wanted to be out of prison and it got him out of prison. It seemed like he was content with their agreement. Now, a week later, a shooting takes place in Atlanta that solidifies Suge's war on Bad Boy, and it sets the East Coast-West Coast rivalry on a whole other trajectory. Puffy and a bunch of folks from Bad Boy are at a nightclub in Atlanta. There's a party at a nightclub. That's supposed to be like a good time, right? Suge is there with his crew and some security. One of these guys is Jake Robles, a.k.a. Big Jake, who's a close friend of Suge's. Now, there's a lot of different takes on what exactly went down and who did what. To my knowledge, or at least what I could find, Suge has never spoken on the record about what happened there. But what's undisputed is that Big Jake was shot and killed. Some people have said, and it's reported in multiple sources, that one of Puffy's employees and bodyguards, Anthony Wolf Jones, got in some kind of an argument that ended in gunfire, which ultimately killed Robles. Puffy and Jones deny any involvement in the shooting. Now, you can imagine how Suge felt losing Big Jake. Yeah, his friend and bodyguard. So now we've got a second incident where presence of Puffy is an interesting coincidence. Mm. Bad things seem to happen to Suge and Pac and their people when Puffy's around. Exactly. We talked a little bit before about who shot you and how that was perceived by the folks on the West Coast, by Death Row, by Tupac. They did not like it. So, of course, now that Tupac's out, he's working with Death Row. He's looking to release his album. He responds in kind, and he releases a song you alluded to earlier, Hit Him Up, in response to Who Shot You. That is probably one of the craziest diss tracks in all of rap history. The whole track is nonstop at everybody in the Bad Boy crew, but especially at Big and Puffy. In the very first breath, Tupac says, That's why I f***ed you, you fat m***. West Side Bad Boy Killers. I mean, you didn't sound quite like Pac, but that was it. I definitely don't sound like Pac. So Tupac, he took this feud very seriously, and... So it wasn't just that he like rapped about having sex with Faith Evans to get back at Biggie. Like, my understanding from what I've read is like he was putting in work to try to really spin that narrative, whether it happened or not. I don't I have no idea. But he was trying to definitely put it out there that this was going on because you might recall she actually recorded some lines for one of Tupac's songs. And there was an agreement to pay her, and then some stuff went down depending on what you read and she claims that then she wasn't going to get paid unless she did certain things with him, which she refused to do. Tupac alluded to this notion that they were friendly and extra friendly. And so there were things being put out in the news and different whatever. And so this was more than just like he rapped about it in a song and there was nothing to ever try to substantiate it. It seemed like he was really going the extra mile to either try to substantiate it or that it maybe there was some truth to it. I don't know about now. Back in the day... Faith Evans was fine. Oh, I think that's a good note to stop on and just jump into the next paragraph. <laughs> we just got to give credit where it's due. She was fine. And a hell of a voice. Had a beautiful voice. She could sing, that's for sure. So this song, Hit Em Up, is released in June of 96. As you can imagine, tensions are now just, we're like all-time high. These crews are tied in with various gangs, and the rivalry is really spilling over as disdain for each side has been pressed on guys who are actually running in these gangs and hanging out with rappers from Death Row and Bad Boy, right? So 
It's not just, well, okay, I'm Puff Daddy. I'm not out here gangbanging. I'm a rap producer that lives in a mansion and makes, you know, million dollars or whatever. Right. I'm a businessman. Right. But when he's hanging out with somebody who actually is running in the streets and is gangbanging, and then they're tied together in a way where they have this loyalty and whatever else and this symbiotic relationship, that's you, when... You talking about Biggie? No, I'm talking about, like, the Southside Cribs. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, to put a finer point on that, in July 96, a guy named Orlando Anderson, who's a respected member of the Southside Crips, and some guys from his crew jumped another guy named Trevon Lane, a member of Death Row Squad and the Ma Piru Bloods. So, in case you don't know, if you're not from America or, because I know we got some international listeners, or if you just don't know much about gang history, Crips and Bloods, the two large gangs, and they do not like each other. The Bloods wear red, the Crips wear blue, and it's like oil and water. So... Anyway, you've got Orlando and his dudes jump Trayvon, and this takes place uh, the Foot Locker in Lakewood Mall in Lakewood, California. The most important detail from this is they jump him, and Orlando snatches Trayvon's death row medallion. This is his piece on his chain, his necklace. And it's rumored that the Compton Crips had put out a bounty for any death row medallions. So when this happens, it's very clear. Suge and Tupac are furious. They see this as an attack on their crew, as an attack on them. It is like this is taking it to a whole other level. And remember, Bad Boy had hired these Compton Crips, these Southside Crips. So there's this belief that because they're in bed together, that Bad Boy is ultimately behind this. Now, I haven't covered every skirmish in this East Coast, West Coast war or all of the things that have led up to this point that we're at, but I've tried to include the most relevant ones. This takes us to September of 96, and it's fight night in Vegas. Mike Tyson, no longer in prison, is fighting his way back to the top of the boxing world, and he's fighting for the WBA heavyweight title. He already has the WBC title. Tupac recorded a rap that Tyson would walk out to that night. Pac and Tyson, they were actually friends, felt like they had a lot in common. They had both been in prison and they had grown up and seen some hard things and, and had experienced difficult things, but had made it to the top of their perspective fields. And so I think they just had an understanding with each other. Yeah. And the similarities, Tupac had an ear for music and Tyson had an ear for dinner. <laughs> I, I could tell by the look on your face you were going somewhere with that, but I didn't expect that. Okay. Whew. So Tupac and Sugar there, they're ringside to take it all in because he's friends. Tyson's going out to this rap that Tupac made for Tyson for his fights to go out to. And uh, the guy that Tyson was fighting against, his last name was Selden. He gets knocked out in the first round, less than two minutes. It was over so fast, fans were angry and thought Selden took a dive, chanting fix after the fight ended. But this episode isn't about Tyson or what he went through or the fight. It's about Tupac. That's right. And in the next episode, we'll pick up from here with the last few hours of Tupac's life, leading up to him being fatally shot, what his last words were, and why the killer will likely never be charged. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Wait a minute. You were 100% on Nah, man, their song was dun 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 I don't even know who that is. It changed everything.